It is a great and terrible thing to come to know the grace of God. It is a great and terrible thing to allow ourselves to experience the truth of the mercy of God. <clears throat> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. This is a favorite for many of us. It is perhaps the most well-known folk hymn of which we might be aware. How often do we think about the fact that John Newton, when he wrote this in the 1700s, was writing about a conversion experience that he had from a place, from a life marked by extreme sinfulness. John Newton, in a time of sailors who were known for being rough and rugged, was exceptionally seen as profane and uncouth. It is written about by others in historical accounts. He became a slave trader and made his money trafficking in human bodies. He had a conversion experience. And he asked that he be able to see and indeed experience the mercy of God. Let us pause for a moment and think about what that entailed for him. For to ask for God's mercy would mean in order to receive the experience of God's grace would mean that he would need to open his heart and indeed his vision to see the life he had led and the cost that he had incurred with that life. The great joy of proclaiming a God whose love is so unconditional it could receive even one such as him is accompanied by the great awareness that God's unconditional love shines a light upon how deeply and tragically conditional our ability to love is. This is the sermon time for discipleship, not just being good Christians. Good Christians are good. Discipleship is hard. The cost of mercy and grace when we open our eyes to see it is a terribly beautiful thing. And it takes great faith for us to approach it. What it means to walk in the path of grace and mercy is not an easy thing. And yet it is the thing that we are called to do, are we not? 
The scripture that we heard read from the gospel today is a difficult scripture. If you were listening with some form of attention, it may have made you feel a little bit uncomfortable. I know it surely makes me uncomfortable. I've been journeying with the scripture all week, and I have noticed more than usual how many people I pass by in the course of a day who are in need and who I ignore. I've become more aware than usual of how many times my busyness and my plans and my comfort have taken priority over opportunities to be a living presence of Jesus Christ in the world. This is hard. This is uncomfortable. This is not a scripture that we love to preach. These are words from Jesus the Christ, whose name we proclaim. And it is a hard path to freedom in God's grace and mercy. I was preparing for the sermon and using some of the materials from the class that uh, we uh, mentioned earlier, Janice did, uh, Love Your Neighbor, Change the World, Becoming a Good Samaritan. I'd like to share just a brief clip that got my attention and is focusing my thoughts for this sermon. Tony Campolo shares an experience he had in Haiti. Yeah, I, uh, I was in Haiti and I was about ready to eat. They had me in this restaurant. I was sitting right by the window. The waiter had brought the food and put it on my plate. And I looked to my right, and here were three little Haitian boys with their noses pressed up against the glass, staring at the food on my plate. <laughs> I just dropped the fork and looked at them. The waiter, seeing my discomfort, moved in quickly, pulled down the window shade. And then he said, don't let them bother you. Enjoy your meal. Needless to say, I did have to respond to those little boys. But I thought about that experience often. And I wonder how many times there are people who are close at hand, who need our help. And we have a tendency to what? pull down the shade and pretend they're not there. I remember of a, an old song from when I was young. <laughs> That's a long time ago. Uh, Bob Dylan singing. Um, and one of the lines of the song was, and how many times must a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? That line runs chills up my back. And I wonder how many times I turn my head and pretend that I just don't see because I don't want to see. Because if I see and don't respond, I'll feel guilty. People say, guilt? I'm against guilt. I'm not. Guilt is a healthy reaction to sin. And it's sinful if you can help and don't. It says this, 1 John 3, 17 and 18. If you have this world's goods, and you know of brothers and sisters who are in need. You see that person on the side of the road in desperate need, and you keep what you have while that person suffers. How can you say, I have the love of God in my heart? 
Fair question. Fair question. There was a quote circulating on Facebook. Some of you, I'm sure, were part of the people who were circulating it recently. I will not uh, give the attribution because I'm not sure that I'm clear on it. But it went something along the lines of, I wanted to ask God why God allowed so much suffering and injustice in the world. And I almost asked, but then I stopped because I was afraid that God would turn to me and say, I might ask you the same question. Do you think that it is an enjoyable thing to stand here in front of a gathering of my brothers and sisters and speak about a topic that is likely to cause you to feel discomfort? Do you think that it brings great joy to stand and say, yes, we can rejoice in the love of God and celebrate all the good things has, God has done for us, but today I'd rather have us look at what we don't do for God. I thought long and hard and almost chose not to share the portion that was just screened. And I thought about softening the message a little bit because of what I thought of would be your discomfort. And then I got more honest. Perhaps it's about your discomfort, but it's about my own as well. These are hard things to look at. What I'm going to say to you is in my discernment about how to proceed, what I received was this word, that we together are more faithful than we realize that we together are more deeply rooted in God's amazing grace in our lives than we realize, that we are closer to freedom than we realize, and sometimes the last few steps can be the hardest. Do not be afraid. Because this is not a sermon about guilt, although guilt may come. This is a sermon about what's underneath the guilt, which is this, our longing for a better world. What's underneath the guilt is our compassion for our brothers and sisters. What's underneath the guilt is our hope and desire that we are afraid to even embrace that this world could be just and abundant and nourishing for all. That's what's underneath the guilt. And when I move away from my guilt, I move also away from my compassion and from my hope and my faith and my desire for a changed world. I move away from the truth that the God that I know through Jesus Christ could make that world possible. I move away from my own faith and my own humanity. Precisely the things that will bless me and free me and bring me the grace of God. One of my favorite theologians, Kathleen Sands, has a quote 
that I will also mangle slightly, but she instructs those of us that might talk about God publicly to stand at the place where the cracks of the world are made visible and that the cost of the lives we lead can be seen. And from there, have the courage to talk about who God is. It's very easy to talk about who God is somewhere far away from the visible cracks. It takes a certain kind of accountability and honesty to stand over the cracks themselves, to face honestly and truly what it is to walk this path and speak about who God is in our lives. There is a gentleman who was on another portion of this video who said, sometimes I wonder, even though I call forth the name of Jesus, how much we really have in common in terms of our interests and our commitments. He says, I look at my calendar, my day timer, my appointments, and I wonder how much of this really would matter to Jesus. And then I look and try and find where the things that I know matter to Jesus, where those are on my list of things to do. The point about this is not to stop at a place of feeling convicted. The point about this is to remember that we are a people of faith who are called and equipped, who are blessed and a blessing, and that Jesus the Christ frees us all in and through that motion, all. You see, the thing about this scripture, this Bible scripture, how many of you thought the scripture is about money? The rich man doesn't pay attention to the poor man, and then he goes to hell, and he needs something, and he says, go get that Lazarus, get me a drink of water, and Father Abraham says, so sorry, there's a big distance between y'all. Can't get over it now. And then the rich man says, well, okay, okay, I get that, but at least have mercy on me and I'll just share that message with my brothers so at least they don't have to come here and experience hell down here like this. Let me, let me get it right as I can get it. Even if I can't fix what I did wrong before, let me fix it for other people so they don't have to burn either. Makes sense. In fact, I would suggest, at the risk of offending you, that it's roughly the faith many of us practice. Let me figure out what I might have done wrong, try and figure out how to make it right, and even if I can't make it all the way right, I'll try and do it as best I can so I don't have to burn in hell, and even if I end up having some torment, I might explain it to other people in a way to help them from burning in hell. Sounds like the traditional formula that many of us were raised with about how to live a faithful life. What's interesting is in this story that Jesus shares, it doesn't work. Jesus says, through the parable, through the voice of Father Abraham, the chasm is too wide. Can't get from here to there. Why? Why? Because the chasm is a relationship chasm. Because the rich man says, basically, I didn't see that poor guy, Lazarus, because it wasn't comfortable for me to see him when I was alive, but I see him now and get him to go get me some water, would ya? I see him. Either which way, 
The only way I will acknowledge or deny this Lazarus person is for my own comfort. I'm going to ignore him when that makes me more comfortable. And when I get uncomfortable, I'm going to see him, but I'm going to see him just to the degree that he can relieve my discomfort. Either which way, Lazarus is not a human being to the rich man. Either which way, the rich man does not engage Lazarus human to human. Either which way, he denies personal relationship with this one. The distance between them cannot be bridged when there is no them for the rich man to see, when he is not another human being, when he is not, in fact, his brother, when he is not, in fact, himself. The key to the story is the rich man cannot be free because he's created his own bondage by not seeing his humanity as being connected, indeed the same, as his brothers. He speaks about his brothers, but the brothers he's referring to are people of the same family, the same location that he comes from. He's concerned about salvation, but not still for Lazarus. He's concerned about his brothers, whom he defines. But he does not speak a word to the care or celebration or connection or concern for this brother that he cannot see. John Newton, when he wrote the words of Amazing Grace, he later went on to talk about that. He said he's talking about mercy because mercy is not only undeserved, it is most frequently undesired. That it is difficult for us to see how truly connected we are to God and to one another that God's unconditional love, the mercy we celebrate, and the grace we claim, if we really live into it, if it will really save us, needs to bring us all the way across the chasm that's between us and them, whoever them is because the mercy and the grace of God's unconditional love can only be known in and through us when it opens us up and connects us to one another. God is a relational God. Our God is a relational God. There's really not much more to it. God says through Jesus, what is the one command? Well, the one which is to love God with everything you have. Have a relationship with God. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Have a relationship with yourself and others. And you will come to see that these are two commands which are one. What does that mean? It's all the same. The love of God, the love of you and me, all part of the same thing. And when I somehow cannot get that, the chasm is too wide for me to make it across. It's my own salvation that I cannot experience, not because God is withholding it, but because I cannot bear to desire it, to enter into it.
And why can I not bear it? Because it's painful. Because it's painful. It's very interesting that this chapter that examines this talks a lot about wealth. In fact, this chapter that the scripture is in talks about the famous line, you cannot serve both God and, often translated as money, but more accurately, wealth. Slight distinction. Money is a thing. It's an object. It's a bill, a coin. Wealth is a little more than that. It's a concept. It's an evaluation. It's of money, but more than money. It's money in abundance, in fact, in excess. The scriptures that talk about this don't say, now he should have gone and given his money to the poor. Not at all. He just points out that he could not reach across the distance that he had created between the two of them. Wealth. Wealth is the notion that if I acquire enough stuff, my self-esteem will be evaluated highly. My esteem in your eyes will be uplifted. I will be protected. I will be secure. Indeed, I will be self-sufficient. I am without need of relationship with God, because I can provide for myself, with you, because I've got myself covered. I cannot serve God and wealth because wealth is a value that leads me away from relational connection. It is about my security, my esteem, my purpose, and often at the expense of somebody else's security, esteem, or purpose. It is antipathetical, antithetical, sorry, antithetical to the relationship dynamic that God calls forth. We are to reach out and be connected, not turn in and be independent. We are called to be dependent once again upon the grace and mercy of God. And when we know that and experience that, then we become free and joyful. See, this is the thing, and this is where we will move ourselves to, I hope, and end on this. I am not asking you today, and I don't believe the scriptures are asking you, to write a check, to give $5 to the next person that you meet at a stoplight. You might choose to do those things, and good. But what I am asking, what I believe the scriptures are asking, is for us to notice the chasms that we have between us and others. Where are we blind and do not see? Whom are we blind to and will not see? Whom are we resisting acknowledging our shared humanity with? And can we begin one step at a time to see what we would not see? that our salvation, the grace and mercy of our God in our lives resides there. That by my seeing and loving and relating to another human being, any other human being, as myself makes available to me 
the truth of the grace and mercy of an unconditionally loving God. The first time I heard this sermon preached, I was very uncomfortable in the pews. What I was asked to do by that preacher helped me immensely. What she asked was that I would lived in New York City at the time, so there were very many opportunities for me to interact with people who were coming toward me physically in need. I was asked simply to treat them as I would a friend who was asking me for something. Would I not look at my friend? Would I just brush past my friend? Even if I didn't have what my friend was asking, how would I handle that? I might just look at them and say, hey, I'm sorry I don't have it today. If I, if I did, I would. I was asked to treat the people who interacted with me with the simple human dignity of acknowledging them as human beings, even as I might a friend. It changed my life. In the neighborhood where I moved around, I, I, I was a student. <laughs> I didn't have money. But I did have time and attention for a two-second interaction where I looked somebody in the face and saw them. I had the ability to grace someone with the respect of saying, I'm sorry, I don't have that to give. I at least acknowledged the request and honored them with a response. The chasm between me and the people around me became very small. Their needs were seen and heard by me. And I came to this great understanding, God does not ask me to save the world. Jesus Christ came already. God does not ask me to save the world, but God asked me to love it. God asks me to love it. And I cannot love what I do not see. I cannot love what I will not touch. I cannot love what I will not acknowledge. And when I cannot love, I cannot be loved in return. And so, the challenge and the invitation is the immense joy and freedom for you, for you, for me, for us, to actually experience this truth we are God's love incarnate. We are. And we can do the choosing of that anytime. We can choose to love our neighbor and in that change the world. The directive is not pay a lot of money, do good works all the time, be perfect in every possible good works way and earn your own salvation. The instruction is very simple. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. The chasm becomes reconciled through the practice of the discipleship that is called embodying the love of Christ. It is possible for every one of us today. Let us bless and be a blessing in the name of the Christ that we proclaim. Amen.